the talk is about our relationship with um, whatever is appearing moment by moment. And so it's like, is our relationship um, one of um, interest? Is it one of um, exploration um, in the truth of what's happening rather than what we want to be happening? You know, so it's, it's really this question is, what is the relationship with each moment of our life? Is it one of like kind of open interest or disconnect defense? So I'd like to begin with a um, story called The Tale of the Little Mosquito. And um, it was translated by the um, a Greenlander named Nud Rasmussen, who was a great explorer. And he heard this story while he was traveling west of King William Island. Uh, King William Island is west of Baffin Island and east of Alaska. There was once a tiny mosquito that flew out into the world. It was so small that it thought that people didn't notice it. But when it was hungry, it landed on the hand of a boy. And while it rested, it heard someone say, "Uh uh-uh, that nasty mosquito, crush it fast. But then the mosquito could suddenly speak so that the boy could hear it. Spare my life, spare my life. I have a little grandson who will cry if I do not come home. Just think, so small and yet a grandfather. What an amazing story. Do we think about a mosquito's family. I mean it when we have that just knee-jerk reaction to avoid pain. Mindfulness practice is starting to explore our relationship to pleasure, our relationship to pain, and our relationship to what is neutral. Because that's life, that stream of change, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. There's a great uh, hermit Japanese poet named Saigo from the uh, 12th century. And um, when you look at his translations, there's a word that keeps appearing over and over in his uh, poems, and the word is tomo, and it means friend or friendship. And if you um, take the time to get to know his poems, he has a friendship with grass or flowers or crickets or some of his most beautiful descriptions of relationships are with melancholy. That's probably my favorite, that, that he has come to just become such friends with melancholy. That... He becomes such friends with it that he um, can't imagine life without it. Like friendship with loneliness. It's, it's just um, such depth of wisdom. And, you know, we, we hit a little boredom and we're like full of doubt and we're out the door, right? I mean, it's like because we don't have a relationship with boredom. We don't have a relationship with doubt. We don't have a relationship with so much, right? So when I first came to practice, it was astonishing to me. My first retreat was so hard because I saw... I just... I don't accept 99% of my experience... And that was generous, really generous. It was more like 99.9% of my experience I didn't accept. 
and therefore no relationship. So it's just like, did we come here to um, get a better relationship with anger? Was that the top of your bucket list? (laughs) Funny, huh? But real. Very real. Did we come here to really understand what our body really is on another level? What do we call my body and what, you know, what is it? What's going on? Etc. So I think that because we have so little relationship, (laughs) whether it's with clouds or joy or anything, that our life becomes bereft of meaning. We get so alone. I was just teaching up in um, Vancouver, British Columbia, um, and then up north there, and um, I was walking down the street, and I saw these little kids up in front of me on the, on the curb, and I kind of thought they were selling lemonade. So I, I, it was really hot, and I had been walking a long time, and I thought, oh boy, lemonade, you know, this is great. You know, it's right out of my childhood. I'll go. I was walking towards them, and I got closer, and there was no lemonade, and there was this little bowl, and I looked inside it, and there were um, broken shells. And they were selling broken shells. <laughs> and I, I was like, wow, things are getting hard up on this planet. You know, all the, all the kids have left is broken shells, you know. At least it was kind of natural, but um, it was so funny. I was like looking at them going, wow, you know, <laughs> Like, find some reason to buy it, you know, just to, you know, feel better with the kids. And their mother came out of the apartment, and she was like, oh, no, she didn't know they were doing it. She's like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But, of course, I bought a broken shell. (laughs) Yeah. disappointment. (laughs) It wasn't quite the lemonade that I had hoped for. Recently, um, by recently I mean in December, uh, my neighbors started putting pictures up all over the neighborhood of their cat. They had lost their cat. Um, And then I went to Burma, came home, and I bumped into the woman, and she was so distraught. She, they still hadn't found their cat. Um, and she said, I thought this cat loved us. Like, I really thought this cat loved us. How could she leave us? How could she leave us? And, and I was like, have you, like, paid attention to the neighborhood? You know, it's like a jungle out there, you know? It's really hard harsh for cats out there. You know, it's just like (laughs) the mother feral cat that I took in just, you know, she comes back sometimes with these huge scratches and just, you know, it's, it's really a hard world. So I said, you could try to consider that maybe your cat didn't leave you and maybe something happened to it. You know, who knows? But, you know, it's been many months, you know, it's who knows. But I just, couldn't buy that the cat didn't love them you know it just and this is our this is what's hard for us it's this integration of love and wisdom the wisdom side of things tells us that we try to believe that we can control right that if if somebody loves us or if we love them we should be able to control them and then if we can't what do we do well then i'm going to give up The defense, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to show up for the sitting if I'm not sleepy. I'm going to show up for the sitting if the person next to me doesn't sneeze. I'm going to show up for the sitting if 
on and on and on and on. If, 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 if. And it's con- that's the conditional. It's so conditional. And it doesn't work. Why? Because we, we can't control sleepiness. We can love ourselves till we're blue in our face, but it's still not going to control if there's sleepiness or not. Right? But we, we get confused, and of course we get confused. So what we need is, of course, that balance of the love, the care, the kindness. But we're not using that kindness to control, which of course we want to, but we can't. So the, the mindfulness, it's um, so critical that we understand that it's about what is happening. What is happening? What is happening? And the, the, um, there's the most beautiful description of it, I think, in um, Suzuki Roshi's book, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. And he calls it soft readiness. And, and this, just these two words could be talked about this whole retreat. It's so profound. It's like when Jesse said, what's next? You know, that that sense of that's the opposite of readiness. Readiness is for whatever is happening. And I think that, you know, what's, what's kind of always heartening to talk about it in this way is that the truth is that we don't know what's going to happen next. And I think that's why spring is such a beautiful time to practice, because you get that feeling of you see a newborn leaf or a newborn dragonfly or a newborn this, newborn that, and you start to be able to take in that actually each moment is newborn. Each, or, or, or life isn't alive. Aliveness requires the birth and death of every moment. It would be nice if you could hold on to the breath so you could really get a handle on it, right? <laughs> but it moves, thankfully. So, you know, we want, we want that stillness. We want everything to stop in a way so we could really examine it, um, but it would die. So readiness, it's so beautiful. It's ready for anything to happen. Uh, one, of, one of our teachers, Sayada Upandita from Burma, uh, died this year. Um, and he was so, with me, with this, with this understanding, he was so fierce. It's just like this fierceness of... Mindfulness is about getting a strong mind, a strong mind. It's like strength. What's the strength? It's the strength to, to be able to be ready for anything. You're, you're getting ready for anything to happen. That's mindfulness because anything can happen. And when we're disconnected from that truth, we're not protected. That's what safety is. Safety is when we understand that anything can happen, so we're ready for broken shells instead of lemonade or whatever. Soft readiness, the softness, um, is also something one could paint many um, brush strokes with because it's like the softness is, uh, is not weak which we tend to hear soft and we might think weak. But softness means that instead of the mind being um, hard, and it, it, I would encourage you to explore when does your mind feel hard. It's usually when we're uh, really fixed on our opinions and our judgments. And we think we know. <laughs> we think we're right. I I read an incredibly beautiful description of a fully enlightened being recently, and it it was like, um, absolutely no more fixed opinions about anybody or anything. 
What a relief. And we can start to um, explore as we get quieter each day. It's like a little quieter, a little quieter, a little more stillness, more energy. Um, and there, that we start to see that tyranny. There's a kind of tyranny of expectation and a kind of tyranny of agenda. And um, I don't use this word lightly. That tyranny kills connection. It, it kills aliveness. Because life is it's so alive. It, it's it's um, ungraspable. It's so alive. So we, sometimes you could say we have a choice of trying to control or connecting. <laughs> trying to control or connecting. And where does um, the truth of kindness come here? Because it's very interesting. There's a, when there is that gentleness of attention because life life is moving so quickly we it requires a true exploration will require an openness not to know what's happening so we might think we know what fear is or we might think we know what um, a bird is or we might think we know <laughs> what the breath is or a step or anything it's that um Thinking we're, we know what's going to happen next, or, or that need to know what's going to happen next. Uh, and then there's that relief when we're connected. The relief of the liberation. It's the release of the freedom of, of just letting ourselves drop into the unknown. That's when we, when we think about the word exploration, exploration means we don't know. And, and it's, it's like we can't always make that understanding happen. But certainly when we come in a retreat, it's like putting yourself in an incubator or a greenhouse. Or it's like you're creating the conditions for, at times, um, an interest in how things are, rather than that belief that we already know, which, which again, it, that's what the kills life. It kills connection. So it's said that when we can apply Mindfulness, this soft readiness, um, with some kind of continuity. And this is the critical piece. It's like, <laughs> when, I, when I ring that bell, you see how hard it is to stay with it from the beginning, middle, of and end, right? That's how hard this is. So when we say continuity, we're not meaning all day. Because that, like you, you say to yourself all day, and you're just going to get tireder and tireder, and it gets heavier and heavier. It's too hard. If I here I am, I've I'm I'm uh, rolled over here a little bit, right? Now if I try to be mindful, even halfway up, it's too hard. I give myself a few seconds to try to be mindful. That's what I mean by continuity, like. Can I manage to get here? Barely. Can I manage to get up here? Barely. That's where we're starting from. That kind of interest. And I like to call this momentary segments. You try to, you're, you're just going to see that over time, if you break it down to smaller and smaller segments, you, chant, you stand more of a chance. If I say to myself, you know, it's kind of... See it as a kind of fun challenge. Let's see if I can get out to that doorway mindfully. That's too hard. 
I say, let's see if I can get down these steps mindfully, that's still almost too big a challenge. So you find that place where um, it's not too small, (laughs) but it's not too big. You know, it's just right for you. Not for the person next to you, not for the person behind you, but for you. You know, we can do this so much more easily when you think of, like, exercise, right? We understand this, even if we don't like to exercise. We've heard it enough times, at least in elementary school. You know, we know that we can't run a marathon if we don't train. So we expect to come in here and be mindful all day without the training. It's not possible. Um, And what we say is mindfulness doesn't depend on anything except another moment of mindfulness. That's what it depends on. What that means is if you did this retreat and you decided you're never going to be mindful again, you're probably not going to be mindful again because it's based on subsequent a series of mindfulness. So if you were mindful five seconds ago, that doesn't mean that you can control when mindfulness will appear again, but it will appear again. And then if you're mindful another time, that makes space for another moment of mindfulness. So it's like, if you, if you get yourself here in one moment, present time awareness, that actually is a seed for another moment of being present. So that moment of being present not only gives you that moment of being present, and to me that would be enough, actually. I would accept that that was enough, because that's what gives us our love. But it actually plants another seed for remembering to be here. And so, you know, when you start kind of breaking down what is mindfulness, well, one aspect of mindfulness is (laughs) literally the training of remembering to be here. So, you know, please stay with me because this is common sense. It really is. It's not rocket science. We just don't like it because it's a training and we want to be able to snap and do it and it just doesn't work that way. It's just like if you're training a muscle. You don't stretch it, you know, to no return. You gradually stress it, you stretch it, you gradually strengthen it. You know, it's, it's like this is something where at times you're going to go, <laughs> I'm not interested in life at all. <laughs> I hate this, you know. Of course. If we were interested in life, we'd be better at this. And to me, again, it's like start, you start, I mean, I've done this enough to be able to make it more simple in that I know I don't want to be here if I'm not kind to myself. Why would we? Why would we be here? Why would we want to be here if we weren't kind to ourselves? So you'll hear us stress the kindness because that's motivating. It's motivating to want to be here. Listen to your mind for five minutes, ten minutes. It's so critical. And if it's not critical to yourself, (laughs) listen to what we're thinking about other people. And the good news is that they're doing it with us. You know, it's like you just listen to anybody's mind and it's judgmental. This is the opposite of that. It's accepting that that's how it is, but it's learning that we do not have to buy into it. We do not have to buy into it. We do not have to buy into it. Very important. So, you know, when I first started to practice, you know, I had some uh, teacher, Ruth Dennison, that also uh, died recently. Um, And she said... um, Self-knowledge is no good news, darling. You know, <laughs> it's just like when you first start down with your own mind, and it's just like whoa, you know. 
And then you realize, again, it's helpful to realize, just look at, you look around and you look at people's heads and you imagine what it sounds like inside their head. And you multiply it by everyone in this room. It's very loud. And the silence amps it up. Thank God we can't hear anyone else's thoughts, you know? It's like, it's enough just to hear your own and realize that when you notice that thinking is happening, for now, anchor. For now, beginning of the retreat, anchor, anchor, anchor. And I'm going to stand up and show you why. Most of our training is to be up in our head. It's modern, not a, you know, east, west, all of that is going. It's just, it's modern educational training to be up in here and to be believing it. To be, you know, you see somebody's shoes, you have a judgment. You see somebody's um, pants, you have a judgment. You see whatever, you have a judgment. You start to see that um, if you don't start getting some space, it's going to be too. It, it's just going to be too hard. We get identified with the thinking because we're good at it. It's not. There's nothing wrong with it. We're good at it. We don't need more training in that. We've had plenty. And it's not to reject that. It's not to reject that modern training. It's useful. It helps us survive in a modern culture. That's not what we need to do, but we need to get that practice. This is called practice to bring the attention away from that. So you get space, you get literal physical space. So that's why we have people come down here rather than stay up here because the thinking is so close to the tip of the nose that you get sucked in. You come down when you're walking, the bottom of the feet. When we're breathing, even if we put our hand here a lot. But it's <laughs> sitting. One of the remarkable things about sitting long enough is what do you start feeling? Earth. Earth element. Your butt really will start letting you know that you're a part of Earth, right? Like it's hardness. Hardness is part of Earth. So we start getting interested in something besides our judgments and our evaluations and our, our critical thinking, you know, the analytical thinking, the conceptual thinking. Um, it's not, again, to reject it as much to know that um, we're living in the tip of the iceberg. We're living in a very narrow dimension. And to start opening up to our bodies, to start opening up to seeing, to start opening up to sound. So the Buddha taught the six sense doors. He called them the six sensitivities. Six sensitivities. Eyes, so sensitive. Ear. How, how come they're so sensitive? Because they can, they're perceiving light. Ears, the speed of sound. You know, physical sensations, they're going faster than the speed of sound. Hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, this fathom-long body, we're encouraging you to find an anchor. I usually have plan A, plan B, and plan C. So for many years, my body didn't feel safe to anchor in, so I anchored with hearing. If I ever feel like my body doesn't feel safe, I have that training. I go to hearing. But you don't want to stop wherever you start. It's like, then I learned how to be with the body and the breath here and my whole body, and um, that became an anchor. And then knowing I'm walking became another anchor, you know, physical sensations, and then knowing the physical sensations. It's like there are many kinds of anchors. Here right now we'll say, um, if you feel like your attention feels more at home, being very wide, like the wide-angle lens, start with hearing. 
And then gradually you'll see we begin the instructions that way. Notice what it is to have like a medium lens, and that would be the surface of your body. A microscopic lens is like the the movement of the breath at the abdomen. Or say your attention gets called to some sensations at your elbow. This practice is meant to be that if your attention is called, it will be choiceless. The attention will already be there. It's not a choice. You were with maybe you were anchoring with hearing, but your attention is now at the elbow. You don't yank your attention back to hearing. You just notice the sensations that were happening at your elbow. And this is where it gets really interesting. So do we do a superficial kind of, I know what an elbow is. (laughs) I don't need to pay attention to that. Or are we interested in just what's there? And then if you can bring your attention there, sometimes you see it from an observing place. Some of the practice is learning for the attention to open up and observe. Sometimes it means the attention is the medium lens and it's observing from the surface. And sometimes it's like practice to have your awareness within the elbow. The attention's within the elbow and observing the sensations from the inside. All of these are good practice. There's not one that's better than another. You have to start somewhere. If you're new, um, you find the anchor that's the easiest for you to come back to. So we're offering three. We're offering hearing, we're offering the, the surface of the body, and I added hands in there because if you're just doing surface of the body, it's usually too big. So you notice the sitting posture, hands, sitting posture, hands, or the movement of the breath. No anchor will work all the time. And by work, that's, that's a kind of whole other Dharma talk, right? But, you know, it's like, is it something you can come back to relatively well? And you cultivate it in a lifetime. Something, again, I want to say it again, an anchor is something that you cultivate over a lifetime. And we usually need some of them, not just one. And if you, if you contemplate the word anchor, you know, there's meaning to it. There's a meaning to the word anchor. If we're, if we're in a boat and we're out to sea and we, we're losing control, you bring the boat back to the safe harbor and you throw the, the anchor in. And we all need a safe harbor. We all need a place to go that's safe and that can ground the attention, and that we can come to stillness with. So as I said, for me, that was hearing at first. And then it was my hands, body. And then it was the breath. I went that direction. But I'm not saying that I stay with any of those all the time. They're skillful means. There is something so utterly beautiful and difficult about right effort. Because what we're offering you is a versatility so that if you're really spaced out and really distracted, then there'll be a certain um, skillfulness to how you will anchor your attention. And if you're having a peak experience and this you know like a sitting of a lifetime or a walking of a lifetime and you're just with the flow of your moment to moment experience you won't need to anchor at all and that's for new people as well as people who practiced a long time it doesn't matter what matters is you start to see that different instructions will be helpful for what different things that are happening And the training is learning how to use all these different um, skills. Metta kindness is another skill. 
It's another anchor. So if we're not super good at all of this, you know, welcome to the human world. (laughs) It's not easy to be human. It's not easy to get a relationship of wisdom and compassion with seeing. It's not easy to get a relationship of wisdom and compassion with hearing. It's not easy to get a relationship with wisdom and compassion with thinking, etc., with body sensations. Do you see where I'm going with this? So it's not that you um, exclude anything happiness, sadness. So that when I said last night that this is not a state-oriented practice, it's very, very important to know that what matters is the relationship with the experience, not the experience. You can get fully awake getting a relationship of wisdom and compassion with boredom. You don't have to get rid of the boredom. Do you see? It's like with whatever is happening. So that's the big thing. It's like learning that, oh, this is okay. This experience is okay. Oh, this experience is okay. Let me see if I can learn how to be with it. Which takes practice. That's all. I don't know if most of us learned how to... um, We we remember learning to ride a bicycle. I was just with a little um, girl that's learning how to walk. I bet today or tomorrow she's she's walking. She's at that edge, you know, where um, she can stand, you know, and just that over and over watching her practice that and practice that. She's been practicing this for months. And that willingness to fall, that willingness to fall, that willingness to fall, that's the only way you learn how to stand up. We might not remember that, but we usually remember <laughs> riding, learning how to ride a bicycle, right? It's that, again, finding that balance. I think one of the most um, important places I learned about balance um, was watching a show on NPR, uh, no, public television, not NPR, public television. And it was a woman who um, decided, she was an artist, and she decided to make her own tightrope. And she studied at the shipyards north of Boston, and she spent a lot of months learning how to make a rope. And then she um, trained herself to walk on this tightrope. And you, she videoed herself through this whole process. This was some years ago. Um, and when you saw her learning to walk on the tightrope, you started to see that um, being in balance was always being out of balance. Right? You just think about walking on a tightrope. There's never any sense of of that you've got this balance, there's always this sense of movement. And that actually is Vipassana practice. That's the mindfulness practice, because you think you're with the breath, and then somebody sneezes. Um, then you're with um, the sound, and then um, there's some physical sensations that call the attention. That's how life is. In Vipassana, you compromise. And so the anchor is meant to be something that you know you can come into a safe harbor with. You can come to stillness with it. You don't have to be going on that moment-to-moment, a thought, a body sensation, a sound. You can just pick one thing and stay with it and stabilize. When you feel the need to stabilize, stabilize. And then at some point... um, It'll be like your attention 
things will shift and you'll start seeing that you actually have enough mindfulness to notice uh, a sound, a body sensation, a thought, a sound, and then you might notice that you got lost in thought. That's fine. And then you decide, oh, do I need to anchor again or do I need to just jump into the stream of change? This, this depends on how much mindfulness you have. That's all. And this is not personal. It's not personal how much energy or concentration or mindfulness you have. That's, that's part of the learning. And, you know, we can, we can talk about it, but it's easier to talk about than to actually do. When we're thinking the experience matters, then we're always going between, I'm a bad yogi, I'm no good at this, or I'm the best yogi here, or I'm really good at this. Or we're just constantly evaluating ourselves by what, what's happening. And that's the beauty of a long retreat. There's nothing like it. You just over and over again notice this. You notice, oh, I'm taking this personally. Oh, I'm taking this personally. I'm taking the sleepiness personally. I'm no good at this. I know. And it, all it is is sleepiness. That's it. Low energy. No problem. No need to run out to Starbucks. You just, it'll, you just go through it. So it's said that if we can apply some continuity with a mindfulness, and remember that we do that in momentary segments, it's said that we start to have insight. And and the insight isn't coming from figuring anything out intellectually. It's not done through the thought process. It's like there'll be an understanding of um, impermanence, that everything's changing for example, or that um, experience is unreliable. And of course, that's why a state-oriented practice is unreliable, because if we're trying to hold on to a certain state and life is impermanent, we feel deficient. We feel like we're not doing it right if it's a state-oriented practice. Whereas if, you're, if it's a practice to be with how things are and how things are changing, um, then we, we don't have to have that sense that we're deficient because restlessness has happened or anger has happened. So that, that, that this all kind of, the more um, you let yourself cook, the more you'll see that sometimes you'll be seeing through the lens of impermanence. Sometimes you'll be seeing through the lens of um, dukkha or um, unreliability. Sometimes it's called unsatisfactoriness. And you know, sometimes we'll have that sense that experience isn't satisfactory. Uh, and, and then there's that understanding, of course it isn't. We can't control it. It's changing. And there's a great, again, safety and protection in that understanding because we're, uh, we're in harmony or in alignment with the truth. We're protected. <clears throat> and the third characteristic of existence that we come to understand on deeper and deeper layers is that when we place our attention anywhere, a thought, a sound, a sight, a smell, a taste, physical sensation, um, that we um, see insubstantialness, that there isn't like a solidity there. And that's where we start to um, understand more deeply uh, how impersonal this is, the life is.
I had a um, friend in, on the Big Island of Hawaii that uh, every once in a while, occasionally, it would come to a Sunday sitting there. Uh, but I felt like he was um, really not really, I think he wanted to take the practice seriously, but he was really holding back. And then um, his partner left him after 26 years. Um, and I, I knew that. And he came to the Sunday sitting. And I read this. It's a um, part of a question and answer a series with a teacher named Srinazargadatta Maharaj from the book I Am That. And the question to him is, um, it's more like a comment question. Pain is not acceptable. And uh, Nazargadatta Maharaj answered, why not? Did you ever try? Do try, and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. That's really amazingly profound. Do try and you will find in pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield, for the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. And uh, I finished reading that, and this friend groaned, he just went, oh, <laughs> and started laughing because he realized what he'd been avoiding. Like, he, real, he got it. It's like, oh, yeah, you get that. And it's like, oh, it's not about right or wrong or moral, amoral, pain, pleasure, neutral. It's about how it is, right? It's just how life is. You're not trying to avoid pleasure, you're not trying to avoid pain, you're not trying to avoid neutral. And just to know that of course we want to get rid of pain. And of course we want to hold on to pleasure. We have to accept that about ourselves. That's the personal self that you have to have that humor with it that, um, you know, when I notice that I'm not accepting pain, I don't go, you should accept pain. It's like I agree with myself. I say, of course I don't want this, but honey, guess what? <laughs> it hurts. Okay, let's deal with it, right? That's, that's how this is. You don't have to say you should. <laughs> you should not want to hold on to pleasure. Well, that's not how we are. Of course we do. It seems very short-lived in my opinion. Anyway, you know, so you, know, you kind of have to um, get that it's really the kindness and the compassion and the tenderness. Dealing with the range of joy and sorrow in this world is why we're here. It's how we learn.
This um, poem or song was written by Uvavnuk. Um, he lived in the Hudson Bay area. This is translated by Nud Rasmussen. The great sea has set me in motion, set me adrift, and I move as a weed in the river. The arch of sky and mightiness of storms encompasses me, and I am left trembling with joy. I have a wonderful teacher in Burma named Ujodaka who said to me, uh, I want to be mindful until I die. I want to be mindful until I die because it makes me so joyful. So let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.